0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Welcome, Jennifer, again for the fourth time to Pivot Parenting. I really appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are going to have an excellent conversation today. One thing that I have noticed on occasion with my clients and I have enjoyed listening in your room for two paid podcasts that I can't say enough good about. I tell all my friends and family that they need to subscribe. (laughs) I even full disclosure, I've even bought the subscription for some people because of the value that you deliver on. Um, But that is of triangulation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that a lot of people are familiar with that term. Can you define sure. what triangulation with a parent-child dynamic sure. can look like?
1: So Murray Bowen, uh, who was the kind of the father of differentiation theory, he talked about the fact that dyadic relationships are unstable and that... Even in physics, the thing to make something more stable is to turn it into a triangle, right? And so when dyads come under stress, like a marital relationship, it's very easy to go look for a third party to help stabilize the dyad. And there's nothing wrong with triangles. There's nothing wrong, you know, even a version of a tri- of a kind of healthy triangle would be Uh, Well, couples who go to a therapist that's involving a third party, but is not necessarily bad for the relationship. Another version of a triangle is a shared kind of endeavor, effort. You're working together for the same goal. That's a way of a a triangulation that increases the stability of the dyad. Uh, But there's a lot of immature and indulgent ways to find that third and an easy target is often children. But let me give one outside of children just so people better understand it. You're upset with your husband. He's annoying you because he's doing this thing he always does. And rather than kind of metabolize, handle that stress and stay in conversation, you go and you talk to your friend about it. And then the two of you roll your eyes and say, man, men are so whatever. But And so you diffuse some of the anxiety out of the dyad into a kind of indulgent self-justification that allows you to not look at your part in this frustrating dynamic in the dyad. And so therefore it sort of stabilizes the dyad because you kind of drained your frustration into your eye-rolling friendship, your mutual, you know, contempt for your husbands or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, so it does something to stabilize, but keeps it immature. And so what often parents will do is they will use their children to to like have a, a sounding board or that's not even really that's too legitimizing as a kind of way to fr- uh, channel yeah. some of your frustration about your marriage and your children end up picking it up, handling it, trying to solve it, whatever it is but you're using them as sort of the stabilizing force but it's a it's a very easy thing to do as a parent but a very negative impact on kids yeah so like one parent bad talking the other parent to the teen absolutely 100% okay exactly that's a form of of triangulation you know your mother blah 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 does this all the time we roll our eyes at each other whatever that's a that's a way of you're kind of joining with the child in a mm-hmm. shared anger, contempt for the other parent, and maybe it drains your frustration and you have a sense of of a collusive alliance with your child, but you're teaching your child how to relate to the other parent. You're teaching them to look after you. One of the, I can't remember the name of the theorist, he talked about how a lot of triangles revolve around victim, perpetrator, and savior or rescuer. And so the father in that example might be saying, mom is perpetrative in this way. She does this really annoying thing. And I'm a victim of mom. And then the child can be sort of inducted into a rescuer position. I have to help dad's feelings because mom can be so mean, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so another way too, I recently heard this example of a child going in and deleting all of the porn that she had found from father so that mom yes. can not see it. And exactly.
1: Precisely. So the daughter would be in a rescuer position. Mom is a victim. Dad is a perp. And so she's trying to protect mom from her pain by keeping information. So she's taking on a heroic role or a strong role because mom is in the kind of supposed powerless position, There's a very typical triangle, and people can take different positions within that.
0: Mm-hmm. Like maybe a parent mm-hmm. confiding in a teen when they don't feel their marital relationship is safe or it's not intact.
1: Right. So, sorry, say that example again, though, that they can confide, like oh, i worried about exactly. this, like something yes.
0: that's emotionally
1: like more adult. Absolutely.
0: Exactly. That maybe their child isn't mentally capable of really dealing with like, these are
1: my fears. These are my concerns. These are my worries. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And so they're kind of in looking to the child to help them, the adult handle their life. And because the child wants so much for the parents to stay together for the family to stay intact and is actually being told, you know, you're strong, I'm weak, right? I'm in distress you know, it's pulling that child into a rescuer position and exploiting that child's need for stability in the family.
0: Yeah. What are some of the most common ways that you see parents being, um, triangulating with
1: a child? Well, it's, it's really very often in the rescuer position. It's so much in my head right now. I'm trying to think about it from a different position. Give me a second here. So they want their child to rescue. Yeah, exactly. They want their child to rescue. And this can even take, you know, take on, you know, abuse is often a form of, you know, you can have, you can even triangulate by being sort of in using your anger and being enraged at your children. And then, the other parent can be the rescuer. So let's say, you know, again, you can flip into different positions here. But one example that comes to mind is a mother who was always a victim in her mind. And so the father was the rescuer. And he would always be pushing the kids to be rescuers of the mother. But when the mother didn't get the control that she wanted, or getting her kids to do precisely what she wanted, or the husband, she would turn into a perpetrator. She would be angry, aggressive, enraged. And the father would quickly move to get the kids to step in with him and be rescuers for the mother. And so this is this is another version of it of like that you can have a parent who's part of of trying to solve the parent. You can also um, do it where one parent is abusive, harsh, mean to the child, and then the other parent goes and is the rescuer of the victim child. And so the parents are like in a conflict with each other, but they use the child in terms of one's indulgent, one is angry, right? One is harsh, one is coddling of that same child, but they're they're fighting it out with the child as their focus. It looks like you know the, the the aggressive one is looking like I'm standing up. The child needs to do more. You coddle him too much, and the coddling parent is like you know I'm I'm protecting them from all your rage and anger. And there's truth in both positions, but they are both using the child to not look at themselves and to not deal with their inability to collaborate. What's the alternative there? Well, the alternative is to stop justifying. See, see, what I would say is that one of the things Marie Bowen, I think, said very brilliantly is that is that anxiety is a part of our relationships. We are all on some level in a stance of anxiety and our anxiety tends to go down when we're in connection with others. And so if you're feeling really overwhelmed by your marriage and you indulge and you talk to your child about it, your feeling of aloneness, of fear, of uncertainty goes down and your child's may now go up, but there is a kind of diffusion of anxiety. The problem is it stabilizes immaturity. So while it is more stable than a dyad to triangulate, it stabilizes in an immature way. The way to not do that is you take more anxiety onto yourself. You take responsibility for what you're responsible for, even if you're really uncomfortable, and you deal with your life. For example, no one is a pure victim. Now, a a child can be. um, But what I mean by that is any adult can take responsibility for their life. And so while we're never responsible for the cruel things that someone does to us, we are able to author our lives as adults and make decisions. But that means more anxiety and more confrontation of your life and making hard decisions and it can be a lot easier to find someone to complain to who sympathizes and reinforces your sense of being a powerless victim but now you're not alone in it and so you stay in your difficult position but don't move into a more self-authoring position or you know one can be um in the perpetrative version of you you use a scapegoat, a partner or a child to manage your anxieties. And so you can feel justified because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So I have a right to be enraged. I have a right to punish them, but there's actually an indulgence in it. And it's managing your fears through a kind of dominance or control over another. And it's easy to justify ourselves when we do things like this, but to take To not triangulate is to take responsibility for who you are, for what you have control over and what you don't, for your impact, and to not let yourself use another person to um, gratify your anger, fear, anxiety through a kind of control. And a a rescuer is often colluding in the idea that I have the power to solve this, to make this person be okay. And we really don't. And so instead of rushing in to help everybody and maybe inflating our own sense of being powerful is perhaps to facilitate somebody taking responsibility for their life, perhaps supporting someone as they learn to self-author, but not getting out over your skis and taking on more than is in fact your responsibility or that you uh, can actually control.
0: Yeah, that's a, a fantastic explanation. One word that kept coming to mind uh, is codependency. That's another mm-hmm. word that we can that we hear a lot of. Yes. Kind of in this realm. What's the difference if there is between codependency and triangulation and how do parents um form codependent bonds with their teens?
1: Yeah, so um, what I would say is often the triangle is a kind of codependency, right? So it's yeah. the victim perp, it's the rescuer victim. It's it's like some leg of that triangle is the codependency. And it's what I would call a collusive alliance or kind of psychological enmeshment, right? Have you ever had a friend who just complains about their life? They're always the victim of everything they don't really want to solve anything. They're looking for somebody to kind of sympathize, legitimize, and help them stay stabilized in their current functioning. And so it's that is a codependent relationship or a collusive relationship because you're uh, in that friendship. If you're going along with it, you're facilitating in them the view of themselves as a powerless victim. Rather than somebody who is choosing the reality that they keep participating in, right? Even if it does make them miserable, even if they are unhappy, they're still preferring it to taking deeper responsibility and changing their circumstances or their role in them. And so, any codependent relationship, the reason why we do it is because many of us are needy, let's say the person who feels like a victim, but Others of us need to be needed, right? And so we often will feel a sense of self or a sense of, okay, well, I matter or I'm not alone through participating in these somewhat dishonest relational positions, even if they're intuitive and we can tell ourselves that we're doing what is good or justified,
0: yeah, I was just going to ask, how does one find themselves in this predicament? What causes triangulation and codependence? Do you think? Well, being alive sure. <laughs> causes it.
1: Having <laughs> a human mean, brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that is life is is hard, and the, and the natural state is enmeshment. And that's how we all start. You know, Psychologically, we're kind of functioning within an enmeshed system. A child doesn't even know that he or she is separate from the parent in the beginning because they can't differentiate a self and an other yet. Um, and so it's kind of what our natural state is, is to look to others to tell us we're okay, look to others to make us okay, And it's a legitimate position as a child. Um, You really are dependent. You aren't able to self author yet, uh, not fully. And it's just easy as we move into adulthood to not move into psychological adulthood and instead to do the indulgent thing. You know, um, if someone is upset with their boss, and they have a problem at work, well, it will takes a lot of courage to step up and say, this is not working for me. And I'm not okay with the way that this project, you know, is getting handled, because it means tolerating the invalidation of somebody you're supposed to please, and the risk of uh, things going badly by standing up or needing to find another job. So what many of us prefer to do Is go complain about it to a partner or a friend and triangulate as a way of diffusing the anxiety, the frustration. We also get a hit of superiority because our friend is saying, "Poor you, poor you," and now I can maybe just not—I just can go and kind of not do the stronger, more courageous thing. And so it's tempting. I guess that's what I would say is it's pulling us to what feels easier in the moment, even though we pay a big price ultimately.
0: Yeah. For sure. So how can one identify if this is happening with themselves in their home? Yeah. Um, are there common red flags that we can... Yeah.
1: Well, if you're in it, I'll do all three of the things I think of as that triangular, those positions, those are all versions of triangulation usually. Um, the victim is like, okay, many of us are being treated in ways that are not good. Uh, or that where we do need to stand up for ourselves, or we need to change something, um, and I'm talking about adults here, not children. Okay, yes. but um, I think that the question is: Am I re- talking to a friend about something difficult happening in my life, in my marriage, in my job, and in that, am I just feeling justified, and somebody's being sympathetic with me, and it makes me feel less alone, but not helping me step up to do something different. So am I using, it's not that triangles are bad. It's, is the triangle functional or dysfunctional? So are you going to the therapist and the therapist is saying, poor you, poor you? Or is the therapist saying, okay, are you gonna, you've got some hard choices ahead of you. If you really want out of your suffering, right? This is what it will take. And that the role of the third is helping the victim step up and get stronger. So am I using that third party to, is it helping me face myself, face my own role in my troubles and get the courage to do something different? Or is it indulgent? Yeah. Are there violets involved? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. If I go away with a covert superiority and it's like, wow, you know, the suffering I go through, you know, probably it's not helpful. Um you know i had a friend who would always come and talk and i'd say well i would do this this is what i would do but she wouldn't ever do it and and you know it was also i liked feeling like the helper the strong yeah. one so you know i'm in a like keep perpetually helping <laughs> but no all i'm doing is diffusing anxiety but she's not so then it's like this is not actually helpful and So in fact, with this friend, I was like, I don't want to keep having these conversations because I don't feel like they actually help you. So it's, you know, that you can look at as a helper. Am I actually facilitating somebody finding their own strength, getting their legs underneath them and being proud of themselves? Or is this giving me a hit of, um, you know, power because I'm the strong one. I'm able to help. I'm able to, you know, um, I'm the I'm the wise one, right? That's often, and so there's an indulgence in the triangulating, the unhealthy triangle. If you're helping and it's actually helping somebody thrive, okay, well, that's functional because you're fostering their actual independence from you, not their dependency on you. And, you know, the perpetrative role, I think that one's probably the easiest to see is that we are being unfair, unkind, unboundary. We're reaching over and uh, basically trying to control others, judge others, be harsh. And basically we're saying, if you'd get it together, I'd be fine. I can't be happy unless you you do what makes me happy, right? But it's more from a kind of superior harsh position, but it's also indulgent, even though the other person may well be doing things that are legitimately frustrating or legitimately under-functioning the contempt and the anger and the control only reinforces that one up, one down dynamic.
0: Yeah. So if we recognize our role or we, and we want to stop or we want to try to get the perpetrator to stop or our child to stop trying to help us because we realize that that's damaging to them. How does one go about that?
1: Okay, so let me just you know, if you feel like you have a child who's you know taken on your anxieties and they're trying to solve them, then I mean, you want to look at what am I doing that, first of all, that they are picking up on my distress and stepping into that role um, because you may be giving off um, distress signals more than you realize. And because kids are perceptive, are are looking to solve. And maybe more important than whether or not your child can track that you're distressed, it's whether or not they think that they're doing something actually gets received by you and validated by you. So um, let's say there's distress in your marriage and your child is anxious about it and is trying to you know, I guess, you know, your child could say like, are you and dad going to be okay? Are you guys going to, I can tell you're upset or it's not that they shouldn't know it because they're going to know it. They're going to track it. The question is whether or not they feel like they've got to do something and it's getting received by you. And so you want to think like, in what way am I receiving that? Now you could say, listen, I do appreciate your desire to help us And I appreciate that it distresses you. And because I am committed to you as your mother and as your parents, we take seriously working this out because we, we have a responsibility to you, not the other way around. So it's like reinforcing that, that I I promise we're doing what we can to um, live up to our responsibility to you. And even though you can feel that there's some difficulty going on, we are getting the help and the support we need to solve this. So talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah. At least you don't have to talk about what the problem is. You sure. want to talk about, right, what the dynamic is. Yeah. About and that. Yes. Yeah, about if you see them picking it up, but you also mm-hmm. want to make sure you're not saying one thing while doing another. So you're also looking at, are there ways that I'm, um, you know, let's say you have a child that seems to treat your spouse like they're a victim of you. Okay, this is the other version of it. Well, you might be like, oh yeah, they're collusive and they're triangulating and all that. And you might be absolutely right. But you of course want to look at, okay, well, how have I made that a tempting collusion? And, you know, they might do that, which makes it easy for me to be angry at them and aggressive because they're colluding and leaving me out. But when I go in like that, I actually am reinforcing this victim um, savior dynamic. And so I have to confront my own aggression. Yeah. So you change your own behavior. That's how you break triangles. You take more, you take full responsibility for yourself and your role in and your responsibilities to those around you. That's how you break the collusive dynamic, the codependent one. In your practice,
0: what has been the effect of this on the parents and on the child?
1: Yeah, well, it's amazing how positive it can be because, you know, um, I remember one couple where there was just a lot of uh, anxiety and frustration between the parents And um he was often in the more perpetrative role and she was more in the victim role. But the kids like felt all that anxiety and they could switch roles, they could do do it both directions, but it was a lot and so the way the kids kind of handled it was they would either distance and just kind of the there was so much anxiety in the house, they would just kind of want to get away from the parents, or they would They would be aggressive as a way to kind of get attention on them rather than the struggle between the parents. So they would vacillate in this particular dynamic. There wasn't really a rescuer. There was more like distance, stay away, or be more of a problem than the parental problem. So they came and started getting some help and started confronting themselves, started facing their dynamic the ways that they would go into this they would use the kids often in their struggle between each other between indulgence and and anger meaning you know kind of coddling and anger the wife seldom kind of holding the rules and the husband often you know being too aggressive and so they started getting more aligned with each other in how they would handle situations with the kids and finding more middle ground and they were really taking seriously their negative impact on their kids. This was a big focus of the work we were doing. So as they started dealing with themselves, taking deeper responsibility for themselves, not just seeing themselves as the victim of the other, what started happening, one, one day they were just wanted to come home from work and they just started hugging in the kitchen. This was very different for this couple huh. but they just were hugging in the kitchen and there was just, the kids were tracking. There was more peace. And sure. this teenage boy who was always trying to get away as far as he could came and put his arm around his parents <laughs> and just hugged them while they were hugging each other. Now he didn't say, say thank you to them. He didn't say, I'm so glad you guys are clearly doing work, but they knew what he was saying. Yeah, he did. Right? <laughs> he yeah. was saying that he was saying like, not only do I not need to get away, I'm like I love you for loving each other better. I love you for taking more responsibility and for their lives to free up more. The kids weren't so burdened by the parental kind of immaturity. And um, you know, I have a lot of stories but another one in my head was do you want me to tell another one, or should I? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
0: I think that it's easier to see ourselves in stories and to connect.
1: Yes, yeah, for sure. So there was one where the father was like the kind of the overfunctioning, um, rescuing one. See, everybody could kind of take on different roles here, yeah. but the parents were kind. But the the wife was sort of the the victim. And the perpetrator. They both were actually. Both parents could play both roles. And um, but he was kind of an over-functioner and she was sort of an under-functioner. And then their their kids would pick up on this and feel like, okay, well, I want to be aligned with the overfunctioner, dad, because he's the superior one. And mom is sort of angry and left out. And so he would sort of in, induct his his sons into this dynamic with him of, they were all the superior ones. And mom was the low functioning, angry one. yeah And so it was this kind and then of course that would make her more angry, more upset, more attacking, more critical of her kids, which would make him then sort of collude in protecting them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started focusing on him right away, which is like, look, you have it in your mind that the problem is her. But every time you go to your kids and draw this circle around you, you know, you guys and, and collude in this kind of covert superiority, you are driving the rage in your wife. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean she doesn't have any choices or that she, because I was talking to her too about taking more responsibility for her life, but, and not, not, not sort of seeding so much ground and then being aggressive to try and get it back. But I was initially talking to him about how he's actually using his sons and how he's actually driving his wife's justifying her low functioning when he was professing to be the one who wants to help make the system better. And she would af- often go after her sons because she saw them as in competition for his approval. And so this was a very, you know, so it was kind of helping both parents see. How they're doing this and how they're using their kids in that triangle, and how it was burdening the kids, but also teaching them how to be in relationship to a woman, how to be a man, not in good ways.
0: Yeah. One of the things I love about your podcast is seeing how these dynamics almost always your clients say, Well, this is how my parents were. This is what, like, we bring our parents' marriage or not into our own as adults
1: yes that's right
0: and it plays out and so how does this triangulation if i'm trying to figure out how to form
1: hmm.
0: my my thought if we're doing this and our teen it seems like the teen is typically the rescuer mm-hmm. but maybe yes. not always uh, no no absolutely
1: absolutely It's often, often true. Now there's also just another, like you can have a collusive sometimes when parents are very enmeshed with each other and the kids feel left out, right. Mm -hmm. They can try to kind of pull engagement through their anger, their rebellious. So I don't mean like a healthy, but like an enmeshed relationship there you can have a child who's taking on more of a rebellious position to kind of pull engagement into um, that out of the parental system. But um, it's like a way of mitigating the intimacy in a way, but yeah. yes, it's often often teenagers are being pulled in a kind of heroic role,
0: yeah, like I had to be the golden child so that my mom yes. felt safe. I had to right. do all of the things. If the parents now listening to this podcast, because this is a podcast for parents, not teens, if they were that child, yeah and it's playing out for them now in real time in their marriage and with their children, what, what
1: advice or words would you have for them? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question and it's a broad one because it depends on how it's playing out. Um, One thing I would say is that we often tell ourselves a story of how we're going to do it differently. And we often do it differently on one level, but then on another level, we're often doing it precisely the same. <laughs> it went <laughs> from over
0: to covert.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That exactly. so We're just, we've got it enough different. So in our mind, we're like, well, yeah, I'm not like that. Okay. But we're maybe we're just playing a different part of the triangle or we're, or we're doing it more covertly and it's not as explicit. So we have to really watch ourselves. And it's not because we're bad people. It's that our minds have learned how to function at that level and Yet we we know what we don't want to do. And so our minds are tricky because they know how to kind of sneak in at the level that again, we don't like anxiety. And so we do what we what diffuses our anxiety often. And often that's doing the familiar.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it's it, the way that we get out of it as human beings is we we allow our our problems to teach us rather than resenting our problems, rather than resenting relational conflict. We allow it to be an informant of where we're functioning. Jung said something like, you know, what we most need to know is hiding where we least want to look. It's often the places that if we actually see what's true, what's real, it's going to push us to grow. And we're probably not going to like how that feels. But it's what we need to accommodate truth and perspective that we need to break out of our patterns. So like going back to some of the couples, the examples I talked about, it's like, no, you've got in your mind, you're the heroic, good parent. You know, this was somebody who'd grown up trying, who had indulgent parents. And so he was telling himself, I am not indulgent. Like my parents were, I'm the good guy, but it was indulgent because he's, he's inducting his children into a role with him that Is in fact indulgent while telling himself he's rescuing them from his indulgent wife, indulgent in her anger. And so he just couldn't see it. But once he saw it, then he's like, no, like I cannot abide that. I cannot excuse it in myself. And that's when it started to change, was when he could actually see, okay, I'm actually pulling something off here that I don't respect and that is bad for my kids. And so. Uh, that's what that's what pushed his evolution
0: that's awesome all right as a sex therapist how does this play out in the bedroom how does this mm. affect both the parents sexual experience and then if it has any effect on their child that they're triangulating
1: with mm. okay well it's, again these are Again, important, another really broad important cushion. and broad because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it just depends on there's so many many ways that this could yeah. play out. But you know, um, there's dark versions of this. I mean, I was thinking how dark we go here, but it's like you know, uh, you know, sexual abuse or even emotional enmeshment can be a form of abuse, right? That is a kind of triangulation. I'm, I'm justifying my indulgence. I had a client whose father would talk to the daughter all the time about how frustrated he was sexually and how unhappy he was in the sexual relationship but she was never there for him and nothing ever happened physically with the father and the daughter but she felt like she had to kind of manage and be a solace for her father in his loneliness and his frustration and and when she actually got engaged to get married, the father started vomiting violently, like in his response, because he was so psychologically enmeshed and she was trying to break the enmeshment and move her life forward. But, you know, that of course had a tremendous impact. Like she felt constantly, like she had to manage every need and wish that her husband had, The now the adult, the child that now was an adult, because she was so afraid if my husband is unhappy, he's going to turn to our daughter. He's going to turn outside. And so I have to produce everything to keep him so, happy with me.
0: Yeah. So caretaking mm. sex, which is always super hot.
1: Oh, uh, totally. oh uh, 100%. <laughs> exactly. And there was no room for her freedom or her, yeah. her pleasure. She just had to keep it like what he wanted. And I don't even think this husband wanted any of that. It was just how she was thinking about what was going to keep her safe and secure. So there's caretaking there can be, you know, just, there's so much resentment. If you have it, like, you know, you're the, you're the bad one. I'm the good one. Um, then I don't need to have a sexual relationship with you because I'm a victim of your bad behavior. And so it's kind of like, I can have my resentment, my anger just erode the foundation of any attraction or desire. And it can be justified through kind of staying focused on how I'm a victim of you, terrible partner, rather than how I'm also a perpetrator in this marriage or how I also do things that undermine your happiness. See, because people will polarize into these positions, but the fact is we can, we're complex and we do lots of um, difficult, immature things. And it's easy to just get fixated on our self-justification and that drives resentment. It drives division and it certainly undermines intimate sex, wholehearted, open-hearted sex. When people take responsibility for themselves and own their stuff and clean up their side of the street, not only does it drive their self-respect because they, they, they know they're desirable because they, Are functioning in ways that are desirable. They're functioning in ways that are healthy and fair. So it makes their self-respect go up, but also makes their desirability go up. And it means that they have usually often a better relationship because it usually pushes their partner to clean up their side of the street and deal with themselves. So as we differentiate, our desire, our ability to, to desire and be desired, our capacity for intimacy all increases. And these aren't one-to-one correlations with sexual behavior, but it increases our ability to be in intimate contact and feel still free to be ourselves. We're not so psychologically entangled that being with others is is very difficult.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Do you have anything else to add to this? Or can you tell us, uh, my listeners, more how to find you, how to work with you? Anything to kind sure. of wrap up?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think I, I I maybe that would be just a point I might drive home a little bit is mm-hmm. that psychological enmeshment generally does not work towards long term good sex. Now it might mean short term good sex because you you You're can project point. all kinds of things on the other person, get all kinds of validation sure. in a short term, immediate sense. Um, And if you do lots of relationships like that, you can, again, get that immediate gratification, perhaps, but not this sense of I am known, loved and desired. The more that we and this is the book is really the focus of the work I do of how do I help people to see themselves enough to take deeper responsibility for their role in their lives, their role in their partnership and to grow into people more capable of love and desire and more capable of self-respect because that creates the ecology of desire that is because if we have somebody in our back pocket we don't tend to desire them we sort of feel like we kind of own them or we you know we kind of use them to manage our own happiness and that's not that's antithetical to desire well it's objectifying it's objectifying and you're using a person as opposed to like look they're they are an other Mm -hmm. and i value them i i like them i I like being close to them because I see them as separate from me. When we're first dating, we, we, we're we clear about that. But once we move in, have a mortgage, kids, and enough resentment, we're like, I own you, okay? <laughs> so, you know, it can be very easy to kind of lose track of the otherness of our partner. Yeah. And also the resentments, you know, when you're psychologically enmeshed you, you enmeshed, you have so much resentment usually in that system that it's very difficult to desire. So I think... You know, again, as you learn to take on more responsibility for who you are, it, it can increase your capacity for intimacy. And so to your second question around resources, I, um, as you referenced, the Room for Two podcast is where I work with couples um, that they're anonymous, but they are real life issues, real life challenges around intimacy, emotional and sexual parenting challenges, um, you know, in-law challenges and how to help that couple see themselves more clearly. And I think the thing that's been really valuable for people that write in about the podcast is that it allows them to kind of take some of the blinders off because they're able to see themselves in other people's stories. It's also helpful because it makes people feel a little more normal, like, okay, maybe I'm not uniquely crazy. Okay, maybe I'm just a human being like everybody else and we're doing these human things but they're we're doing human things that make us rather unhappy. And so, you know, how can I change this or shift this in my own life and my own marriage? And so it's a it's a way of learning um, where you can make your marriage better by by listening in on my work with others.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> and of course, the website is finlaysandfive.com. Everything will be in the show notes for people to check out, um, your bio and website and everything. And I just want to thank you again for coming on. You always have such wisdom to share.
1: Thank you. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.